And in these days, says the Lord, I am restoring my temples. I am pouring out my spirit on my temples. And I am rebuilding the altar of, our, of your heart. Before the temple can be built, the altars must be repaired, says the Lord. And in this move, I am working in your heart. Soften yourself to me, says the Spirit of God. Soften yourself that you might be soft clay in my hand. And I will mold you and make you into the image of Jesus. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be hard like clay, says the Lord. For if you are hard like clay, I cannot change you. I cannot mold you. You're like a stone in my hand. I cannot do anything with you. But if you soften your heart in repentance, soften if you soften your heart in repentance and repentance this is me speaking not the Lord but repentance isn't what some of you think feeling guilty and bad repentance is more a turning to the Lord than a focus on sin and so the Lord is saying that we're to turn to him with our hearts that we're to allow the softening influences of the Word of God and the prayers of the saints and the softening rain that falls on the soil of our heart during worship and the softening of faith and the softening of thanksgiving and the softening of trust and the softening of forgiveness of others patience with others, love of others, the softening of his presence, the softening of good deeds and good works and kind words. Oh, the, the flow of softening that comes by the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And God is calling on a soft-hearted generation in these days. And he is restoring, as he said, the temples. Your body is the temple of the Lord. And it's through your body that God wants to do great works. You shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You shall share the gospel with your voice and people shall come to me, says the Lord. You shall do good works through your body. And your temple is the outer courts Your body is the temple outer courts. And just like the outer courts of the temple of Jerusalem, where the world could see, so I will use your outer courts to touch a lost and dying world. But before I can properly use you as I want to use you, I am using you, but I want to use you in a way that it would seem like I've never used you before. Before do that, I've got to go to the altar of your life. Your heart is the altar of God. Your heart is a precious thing because from your heart flows all the issues of life. If your heart is sanctified, Everything that flows out of your heart, the altar, will flow through the outer court. It's like in John's Gospel when Jesus said, Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The innermost being is your heart. 
But I want you to understand the Lord is speaking about your heart tonight as a altar, a precious altar of worship where the sacrifice of praise, prayer and obedience takes place. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And every temple has an altar. And that altar is your heart. That's why you're to guard your heart, as the Bible says. Because if the altar is in disrepair, the temple can't function properly. I hear the Lord saying that. I hear the Lord saying that. If the altar is in a state of disrepair, the temple can't operate the whole point of a temple is an altar. Without an altar, a temple is not a temple. It's just a house, a building. But when an altar is restored, sanctified, then the temple begins to operate as it's intended. It comes a place where the indwelling of God, when Solomon's temple was built. God's presence came because of the altar of sacrifice and worship. Without the altar, God would not be there. Present yourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. Present to Him your heart and say, Lord, my heart, my inside, my, who I am, I offer it up as an altar to you. I restore the altar of my heart. It's not going to be hard as clay. I'm not going to allow the world to harden me. I'm not going to allow disappointment, distress, or betrayal to bring my altar into disarray. I'm not, allow, not going to allow disappointment, heartache, betrayal, to let my altar be in a state of disrepair. God is mending hearts in these times. He's doing a work of restoration in your life. A work of restoration, not to restore you to what you were in, in the past. This is a work of restoration according to the image of Jesus. He's not going to restore you to what you were a week ago or a month ago or a year ago or even to a time when you were moving perhaps in great blessing. He is restoring you to the image of God that He created you. He is restoring you to who you really are, a new creation, a born again. He is restoring your nature, who you are. He said, I'll take out the old heart of stone. And I'll put in a new heart of flesh, soft. And when you were born again, when you came to Christ and believed for the first time, He gave you a new heart. But this perverse generation that we live in and the fallen world, it can take that new heart and seemingly make it hard again. And it's like the old man which has been crucified, but the old man seems to come back. Only seems because the old man is crucified dead. But the renewal of the mind is a rejection of the old ways and an embracing of the new. So let me in, says the Lord, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That prophecy is a prophecy to the church. If anyone wants to fellowship with me, open the door of your heart. Let him in afresh. We don't want an altar of religion. We don't want to be an altar of tradition. We don't want to be an altar made in the image of anything but God. We want an altar where God can place His fire. Hearts on fire. 
hearts aflame, ablaze. The fire comes on the altar. God is fixing to send the fire on the altar of our hearts. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be whole. You just have to be open and willing to qualify for the fire of God. The fire of God is clean, purifying. The fire of God brings the heat and warmth of the Holy Spirit. It softens the clay of our hearts and causes them to become supple in the hands of the Master. The fire burns up the sin. It burns up the influence of this present age. And it sets us alight and ablaze with the Spirit of God. I baptize you with water, said John. But behold, one is coming that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Lord, send your fire on our hearts in these days. We know you're doing a work of restoration. Continue it, we pray. Don't leave us as we are, but take us on to where you want us to be. Lord, we consciously yield to you and invite you to continue to do the work of rebuilding and restoration. That the altars of our heart would be restored. That the fire of God might come on the inside and cause these temples that you have created to blaze with the burning fire of gospel truth. To blaze and burn with the fire of passion for Jesus and the lost. The burning, cleansing flame of the Holy Spirit. Lord, in these days, do something new amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your seats. That's just a prophetic leading of, of God for you today. Thank you. Take that into your heart. Think about what it means for you. God, the one thing that God does not want is for us to stay the same. He wants us to progress, to grow. God's got a plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. And if we believe him, he will, faith will cause the change to come. Faith always moves forward. Faith is always looking for change. Faith is always activating the power of God. Lack of faith just leaves us where we are. I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezra. Uh, last week, I began a series called Ezra, the Restoration. And if you weren't with us last week and you're interested, you can, of course, go on the internet. And last week's sermon is, is there, but I'll recap on some of that today. And if you're joining us live on the internet or watching this later on in the week, you're very welcome to join, join us. It's good to have you with us. Last Friday, well, not last Friday, the Friday before last, the conference Friday... I mentioned on last Sunday evening that I went to bed about 11 o'clock, put my head on the pillow, closed my eyes, and I felt the Lord say to me, read Ezra. And I thought, well, I've left my glasses downstairs in the office, and I don't think my wife would like me to keep her up reading Ezra. But then the Lord said, listen to it on your iPhone. You've got an app there. So I got my iPhone. I got the Bible app. Up, I put my headphones on. I began to listen to Ezra, and I've I've studied Ezra many times. When I did uh, religious education A level, before I was even saved, I got saved at university. When I was at school and did religious education A level, I studied Ezra. I was studying Ezra before I was saved, so I thought I knew it pretty well and its background. But as I began to listen, just to the simple reading. of the book of Ezra, it was like I was listening to a book I'd never heard before in my life. It was so strange. Things were 
being highlighted by the Holy Spirit and were leaping out as the person read it into my heart and mind. And I began to see prophetic revelation from chapter 1 right through to the last chapter. And that God was speaking prophetically through the book of Ezra for our lives in this time. And he was speaking a word of restoration. But not restoration just for the sake of restoration, but restoration to be fit vessels of the glory of God on the earth. And we went into the book of Ezra, and I'm not going to read the sections that we've done, but I am going to take you through it. So open your Bibles at Ezra chapter 1 as I recap before I move on. I said that the book of Ezra is all about the restoration of the Jewish people from 70 years in Babylonian captivity. They had been taken off into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And that's during the time of Daniel. And Daniel read in Jeremiah that this time of exile would only be 70 years and then there would be a restoration. And Daniel prayed for three weeks over the word of Jeremiah and was visited by an angel confirming that this would indeed take place. We see that in chapter 1, that verse 1, it says, Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's always the word and the spirit. Jeremiah's word that the children of Israel will be restored after 70 years was powerless until the spirit moved upon it. And we mentioned how the spirit came on an unbeliever, Cyrus, and at the right time, it's amazing, isn't it, that God could say 70 years, and it was 70 years right on the button. And not even Cyrus, the uh, leader of the greatest empire, could stop God's prophetic word when the anointing came. And Cyrus thought that he was doing things of his own volition. He thought that he was making plans and making decrees and sending people home to their different nations. He thought it was his decision, but what he didn't know that God was working behind the scenes. God is totally and utterly sovereign and in control of everything. Everything. And even the evil that men do and the evil that the devil do, God can use for his good. If you don't believe me, the worst human act of sin that ever took place was the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. It was the most wicked, evil act to crucify the Lamb of God on the cross. And yet all the way through that wicked act, God was going to use a wicked act to become a beautiful act of salvation. This is the mystery of God. And we also saw later on in chapter 5 that, uh, sorry, verse 5 of, of chapter 1, that God also stirred the spirit of heads and fathers of Judah and Benjamin to go and build a house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, I mentioned to you that not everybody came back from Babylon. You, you don't think that all those that went off to Babylon returned. On the contrary, only a very few returned. Only a remnant returned. The vast majority of Jews stayed in Babylon. And for many, many centuries, Babylon, the area of Babylon, had a huge population of Jewish people that went in the exile and never returned. Many of the, of the other Jews before the exile, when they could see what was going to happen with Babylon, many of them fled and went down to Egypt. And again, for many centuries in, in Egypt, in Alexandria, there was a great number of Jews. I mean, even Jesus. Do you remember when, when Jesus had to flee and he went to where? Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Why? Because there were so many Jews there. So this was just a remnant, really, that had returned. And God was working by his spirit. And then verse 7, we saw that King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord. And I said, this was an amazing thing. Because these were the very articles that were plundered from the temple 70 years ago. And some of the people that saw it plundered thought, we'll never see this again. 
They thought the era was over. The era of worshiping God's temple had finished. They saw the temples being, the, the utensils being taken up. And I said that this picture of the restoration of Ezra is also a picture for us today. That God is working behind the scenes in the nations in order to do something. There are Cyruses out there right now. Cyruses that God is wanting to use in the forthcoming revival. We've said that the church or the church in Europe is in Babylonian captivity by and large, with some great exceptions. But the church in Europe is in Babylonian captivity. God is judging Europe. Do you know that? Europe is under the judgment of God. I'm a grace preacher. We're a grace church. But you can only understand grace in the context of judgment. And God does not forego his judging. And I spoke last week, didn't I, about how God judges. He gives people over to their sin. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, when you read through, it says that God gave them over to their sin. He says, if that's what you want, you don't want me. In your unrepentant, unregenerate heart, you don't want me? Okay, you don't have to have me. I'm going to step out. I'm going to take my hands off you. I'm not going to influence you anymore. You can have exactly what you want. That's how God judges. He doesn't judge with tornadoes and lightning bolts and things. Not in that sense. I mean, the whole world is fallen, and therefore, when we see catastrophic events, that that is a judgment in the sense that the whole world has fallen, and so things don't work as they should. But the way that God works in the New Testament, the way that God judges, is he just takes his hand off. says, you want it? You got it. You, you don't want me? The worst thing I can do is stop intervening then. And so what we have in large parts of the country... And Europe is we have people whose hearts are hard to God. I was in an area recently. I won't talk about what the area was, but I was in an area recently, and I was walking around, and I could feel the hardness of the people against God. I mean, it was, it was stone cold in the spirit. Do you know what I'm saying? It was stone cold. It was like, I know God is everywhere, but it was like there was an absence of God. I looked on the people's faces in this area, and their faces had an absence of the knowledge of the Lord that, was, that appalled me. I'm still affected by it. I'm still affected by that area, and I know why, and I know why that area is, but I'm not talking about that tonight, especially if you live there. <laughs> it's not going to help you, is it? But I was there and I just thought, this is like a desert. And I thought, this is the judgment of God. This is the judgment of God. But God is wanting to bring a restoration. Where there's judgment, there's more grace. And so God is looking for a people and a church that will come out of Babylonian captivity. Many of the people wouldn't come out. They had made their home in Babylon. They had forgotten the days of the temple. They had forgotten the days of refreshing and the revival, if you like, of the past. They would forgotten those days. And they'd made their place in Babylon. They'd got used to the Babylonian captivity. They'd got to used to living in Babylon and speaking Babylonian. And they, they, they'd, they'd made their place there. They'd began to profit there. They began to put down roots there. They'd, some of them had began to marry Babylonians. And so they were very comfortable in Babylon. Beware when you get comfortable in Babylon. Beware of churches or preachers that seem comfortable in Babylon. They talk about Babylonian things, possessions and wealth and, uh, and all the things that would keep you comfortable. It's Babylonian talk. The comforts of Babylonia, of Babylon prevented many of them making the sacrifice to go back to build the altar and the temple. But as God was stirring the Cyruses, 
And also those that hearts were soft, they begin to say, we need to go back. And God began to move. And as they began their journey, they didn't go back alone, but they went back with the utensils of the former temple to build the new temple. What I'm saying is this, is that what God did in the past, he's planning to do in a new way in the present. That we can go back to the great revivals of Europe, not just Britain. The great moves. And not that we're going to repeat those. God's got something special for this generation that's obedient to him. Not that we go back to those and try and copy. God will do a new thing. But there are principles in the old paths. It's time to tread the old paths. Time to tread the old paths and the old doctrines. Time to go back to the Word of God. Preach it as it is and tell it as it is, whether people like it or not. It's time to preach on hell as well as heaven. To warn this current generation that there are ramifications for the choices that they make. It's time to preach the truths of the Word of God. Today's Babylonian church, they preach whatever they think people want to hear. They take the Word of God and try and make it palatable to Babylon. They say, don't preach the old truths. Don't preach. There was one preacher who banned his ministers from speaking about hell or judgment on the platform of the church. Banned it. Said, people have enough trouble in the world without hearing about judgment and hell. Babylon. Comfortable in Babylon. And people are trying every little way to try, they say, to try and make the gospel relevant. To try and make the gospel relevant. And by trying to make the gospel relevant, they lose it. Because the gospel is an offense. The gospel, you, you cannot stay on the fence when the gospel's preached. The gospel is not comfortable, it's confrontational. It's about heaven and hell. It's about Jesus defeating the devil. It's about darkness and light. There's no gray area in the gospel. You're either saved or you're damned. There's no in-between. There's no other way to come to the Father except through the Son. No other religion except that which God has revealed in the New Testament. That's not my words. That's the New Testament words. And thank God the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for Christians and Muslims and Hindus and atheists. It doesn't matter where you are, what race or creed or what religion you're from. Jesus and his good news are for you. It's for everyone. It's the most inclusive, it's the most inclusive message in the world because God so loved the whole world. So the whole world can be saved if it wants. And so we're taking the utensils. We're thinking about where we come from and we're saying, Lord... It's the old ways. It's getting on our knees and praying. It's believing God for a breakthrough. It's sacrifice. It's coming together in unity. It's turning from Babylon and making a journey. And we're on a journey, friends. We're on a journey together back to the altar of God in our lives and in this nation to play our part with other churches that also are on a journey that God is leading them. He is calling and restoring, and he is bringing the remnant out of the church, in different churches. and He's pulling on a remnant, remnant. And there'll be those Christians that remain Babylonian captives until they die and go to heaven. But God is calling you and I out of Babylon in, into a, a, a new way and a, a new place that, that God has. Christian, can someone get Christian for me? And then we moved on, and then I'm going to finish the recap, into chapter 2, and we saw We saw in chapter 2 all these names. And we said that these names, and that as I was sitting there listening to these names on the Bible, I was thinking, what's all this about? And it reminded me that normally I skip genealogies when I do my Bible reading. 
Why? I'm not interested in all these people. Who are they? They're all dead. I'm not interested in this. In fact, when I come to a genealogy, I smile because it means I'm going to read extra chapters today. So I always skip genealogies because I couldn't really see any point in them. But as I was, I couldn't skip this because I was listening to it on my phone. And so I heard name after name. Thank you. Name after name. And, I be, and the Spirit of God began to move on me. And um, the Spirit of God said, this is a role of honor, a role of reward. These people that returned were noted. They were not forgotten by God. They, they may have been forgotten by others, but they were not forgotten by God. God is raising up a generation that he is going to honor. Honor. This was a role of honor. This is this, this chapter 2 with all these names. You know what it is? It's like the book of life. The book of life is used in different ways, two ways. It can mean those that are saved, but really the book of life means those that get a reward, those that are honored. And the book of life in ancient Greek cities was a book where if you did anything great, in warfare, if you're a great politician, if you're a great athlete, if you excelled, your name would be put in the records of the book of life of that city so that future generations could go back to the book and see those that excelled. And these are the ones that excelled. It's a picture of reward. God is calling us back to restoration because he wants us to become outstanding Christians outstanding Christians, highlighted Christians. God wants your name there. So I'm listening to these names, and I'm thinking how wonderful it is that God is showing us that there is a place where we can have our names written, that we can make our mark together by coming out of Babylon and repairing the altars of God. And then finally, I got to verse 62 of Ezra 2. That's where I ended. And I said there was a group of people that had lost their genealogies. They had lost their history. And um, they wanted to return, and they wanted to be part of building the altar and the temple and, and ministering there. But because they couldn't find their genealogy, because they couldn't prove their history... They were not allowed to. What was, that, what was that talking about? Well, that's talking about the fact, and I ministered very strongly and prophetically on that last week. You can listen to it if you didn't hear it on the internet. That when God places you in a house like Kensington Temple, it's not day one. It might be day one for you, but it's day 160, whatever it is, for Kensington Temple because you can go out of that door Turn left, and you can see the founding stone of this building. It was called Horbury Chapel in the late 1800s. And when you look at the history of KT, it's on the website. It's in my book, Land of Hope and Glory. And as you, uh, uh, there is a history that's built up over the years in this church, a history of sacrifice, a history of the people. And every generation that came into the, it, through these doors... They had something to give and something to teach. It's not day one when you entered. You have entered a flow of history. And so when you come to KT, I was saying some people come to Kensington Temple and they want to change Kensington Temple. They say, I want Kensington Temple to be, I'll make this up because I haven't heard this. I want KT to, to be more like HDB. Or I think KT should be more like Hillsongs. Or I think KT should be more like Lakewood and well, thank God for all those because they're who God made them to be. But just as I wouldn't be happy if you went to Hillsongs and said you need to be more like Katie, I'd be saying, shut up. God knows who they are. So people have come at times into this house and tried to change the history of the house or tried to bring a false history in that's not our DNA, that's not our calling. And I went through some of the prophecies that are over this house that the glory of this latter house will be greater than the former of the elder decades ago, who's had a vision in the church board meeting. He saw people coming through those doors, and as they came through those doors, he saw upon their foreheads, hearer of the word. But then he saw them leaving those doors with on their forehead, doers of the word. 
And there's many more. There's prophecy over our senior minister's life by Paul or David Youngie Cho that he would bring revival to London. We believe that he will. And even if he dies, we believe that there'll be a seed or something that he deposits apostolically that will be part of that revival. I pray he sees it with his own eyes, but it's not for us to say. But it's for us to understand our genealogy and our history. It's for us to understand that the torch has been passed and built. And we are building on our history. It's important to know the flow. And you can get in the flow of this house's anointing. You can get in the apostolic flow that has been building for years. George Jeffries, the founder of our denomination, this was his headquarters church. So there's so much history. I don't want to go too much into that. But these people, they didn't have a history. They refused to look at the history. They refused. They'd lost their history. They, they had treated the history, their spiritual history, with disdain. So when it take, came back for restoration, they couldn't find their genealogy. They'd been careless with the past. And so they couldn't enter the future. We want to go forward, but we have to understand where we've come to who we are today. Because this house, this house has been here from day one. Do you know what I'm saying? When it was Horbury House. The Spirit of God came upon a congregational church down the road. And in a night of prayer, as they were building new houses, this was an area of pig farms. As they were building new houses, the fire of God fell upon them in this congregational church. And they wept with tears who would reach these people in Notting Hill Gate. And they raised an offering that would have been millions of pounds today in one night to begin the building of this house. It was a church plant pioneering spirit. And this house has always had an anointing and calling of God, even when it was Horbury Chapel. Then it was Kensington Temple with its various senior ministers. God is building, and we are now the ones carrying the flame. Those that have gone before us are cheering on from heaven. They're cheering us on. They're saying, here, we passed the baton. Run! It could be us that reached the finishing line. You hear what I'm saying? This is bigger than individuals. This is bigger than the fact that we just happen to be around today. There is a whole history of this house in heaven. A great cloud of Kensington Temple, Horbury Chapel witnesses that were sitting where we sit, that built this building, that filled this building, that gave to this house. It's not just about building, but you know what I'm saying. They're watching they're witnessing, and they're saying the ones in the 1800s were the ones that first began the relay race of the anointing in this house, and they began to run, and they passed it on, and they passed it on. It was dropped. It was dropped, if you look at our history on occasion. It was dropped. Just like in a relay race, you can drop the baton. It was dropped for a period, but bless God. Someone came back and picked it up and began running the same race and passing it on. And now it's in our hands, friends. And it's not an individual or just a group of people who happen to be in this church right now. It's the church militant. That's who we are. We're alive. But it's the church triumphant. We are one. There are thousands of Kensington Temple members that are in heaven. They're as much KT now as they were then. And they're in heaven saying, come on. When we were on the earth, we ran. We ran with the vision of the house. And the vision grew and the vision matured. And we added to that vision what God wanted. And then we passed it on. It dropped and someone picked it up. Now it's in your hands. And the vision of the apostolic vision has grown in these days. And it's been made set clear. The vision of the house has been set clear. And, and just like Habakkuk, run with it. Hallelujah. And like I said, I don't know. Maybe we are the last leg. Jesus is coming soon. Maybe we're the last leg. Maybe it's us, friends, together carrying the baton. And we're going to hit the finishing line when Jesus comes. But even if not, there's people that aren't born yet physically, who aren't born again yet, that are going to be the next generation that we're going to raise. 
And what are we going to put in their hands? Are we going to put a baton? Are we, are we going to, you know when they race in those wonderful relay races? Each individual runs. And sometimes an individual that's weaker loses ground. And they pass the baton on in the team. And the person who rings the baton says, we're, we're behind. We're behind schedule. And the person receives the baton behind the other teams. And then you get this strong runner, and he takes the baton, and he's fallen behind. So he makes extra exertion, and he runs an extraordinary leg, and then passes the baton on ahead. And so you can get the baton, you can say, we're ahead. Oh, don't slow down. Press on. We've got the baton. Are we going to pass it on ahead or behind? The plans of the Lord for us. That's a prophetic picture for us all today. And so that's this, we see ourselves in context. We are one. We are a house. We are Kensington Temple militant. That's me and you. We're alive right now. But we are Kensington Temple triumphant. And those witnesses are cheering us on and saying, I remember when I sat down there. In the 1800s, 1900s, come on, don't let the team down. We've run our race, we've finished the course, we've done our leg, but now it's in your hands. What an honor, what a privilege. I don't know about you, but I find that exciting. And so that's where we were. Now, this is where I want to pick it up. They return. It's a remnant God always starts with a remnant. He always starts with a few. Started with 12 in the New Testament. 12. 12 men. And what a bunch they were, as you know. What a bunch. And one of them wasn't even among them. Judas. He started with 12. And look how many millions and billions of people have been saved since. God always starts with the remnant so that nobody can boast. Well, thank God we're more than a handful tonight, and we're more than a handful in Kensington Temple, London City Church. We're thousands of people, but we're nothing but a drop in the ocean of British humanity. Nothing but a drop, but that drop can multiply. Hallelujah. And so, here they come, and I want to talk about the blood altar, and chapter 3 is where we are now. So, they've returned They've returned and everything is broken and overgrown. And thank God for the restorations. I don't want to appear too negative. I'm speaking prophetically. But thank God for the restorations that have taken place in the body of Christ. You know, God, God has restored many things, hasn't he? And we're grateful for that. But where God wants us to be, where he wants us to be as a church, as people, where he, what, what, where he wants us, where we are is desolate and broken down and in disrepair. The crazy thing is that some people think that the desolate, broken down, disrepair that we're in, I'm speaking generally in the body of Christ, they somehow think is glorious, wonderful. We've arrived. God's blessing is everywhere. And we're just walking in the, um, the blessing and, and they're walking around. The uh, ruins, as if it was beautiful, pristine, and brand new. It's a mentality, friends. When you look at the former house and when the temple's built, it's an amazing thing we see later in chapter 3 because the, uh, the temple is built but not like the Solomon temple. And they build the temple and all the people that were born in Babylon... They're going, yes, this is awesome at the end of chapter 3. This is great. What? This is amazing. And they're cheering and they're shouting. And so they should. They did a great job. They're cheering and they're shouting. This is in verse 13 of chapter 3. But all those in chapter, 12, sorry, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, all those that remembered the old temple, they were weeping. And all you could hear was the cheering and the weeping, the cheering and the weeping. I'm going to come to that next week because there's a prophetic significance to that. The cheering and the weeping, the cheering and the weeping. 
Why? Because thank God they were cheering, and that's good, but they had no idea the vision of the Solomon, Solomon Temple. They had no idea. To them, this was great. Hey, it was better than what they had before. It's better than the ruin. And God wants to enlarge your vision and enlarge the vision of the church of what is acceptable to God and what isn't and what is restoration and what isn't. And let us not play in the, t- play in the ruins as if it was brand new. I was brought up in Yorkshire and in areas of Yorkshire, there was quite a few ruins, ruined monasteries. Henry VIII did a great job as um, the first uh, head of the Church of England in destroying most of the monasteries and taking the money for himself. And there's one place called Fountains Abbey near Ripon that we used to go to many times. And we used to play in Fountains Abbey and think how it was and how beautiful it was in the ruins and, and, and how amazing it was. And you get postcards. But I tell you what, if that's what it looks like in the ruins, what must have it looked like? In its glory. Didn't have a vision of it. In its glory. And then someone drew a picture of it. In its glory. And you could look at it in the shop. And you think oh my goodness. Well let's not look at the ruins. And think it's the glory. You hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying that what we've got isn't good. And thank God for all the great things that are happening. In the, the church of Britain. And thank God for the new archbishop. Let's pray for him. Thank God for the Alpha Course. Thank Okay. We, we celebrate the goodness of God, but where God wants us to be and what God wants us to do compared to where we are. Hear what I'm saying? How great is your vision of God's greatness? Because if you think, well, we're nearly there, then we need some serious mind renewal. And so, chapter 3, when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem then Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of these countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. So the first thing that they wanted to do was get the sacrifice going. They wanted to get the blood flowing. It had been 70 years since blood. 70 years without blood sacrifice. You say, so what? Well, according to their their beliefs, they knew God was with them. But without sacrifice, there was no glory of God. Without sacrifice, there was no atoning of sin. They're about to enter and are entering in, as we can see in the next thing, the feast of tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles in the seventh month, it starts with the blowing of the trumpets. It's the new year. They began the altar in a new year. It was a new time. It was a new beginning. And then the second part of the Feast of Tabernacles is the Day of Atonement. When the sacrifice atones for the sin of Israel. They'd not had the new beginning for 70 years. They'd not had atonement for 70 years. And then the final one, of course, Is the Feast of Booths, which is a celebration of of the final harvest and a celebration of God's blessing in the wilderness. And so they were entering into this festival. But I want you to see that the first focus they did in this restoration, as they traveled out of Babylon, they began to look at the altar and rebuild the altar so that blood power could start flowing again. This is why I think it was significant that the Lord was speaking about the altar of our hearts like them. God wants to start with the altar. Can you imagine if they'd left the altar and built the house? It would be the wrong way around, wouldn't it? You see, if the Lord doesn't build the house, we build in. And you, you, the only thing that you can truly build on is blood. Blood. Christianity is a blood religion. It's blood. If there's no blood, there's no sacrifice, then there's no forgiveness of sins, then there's no resurrection. Christianity is a message of blood sacrifice, the lamb that was slain. And look, we see the two people in verse 2. Jeshua, which means Jesus. Jeshua, Joshua, it all means Jesus. 
Jeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel. These were the ones that arose to build the altar. You say, is that significant? Yes, it is. Because keep your finger in Ezra, but if we go to the prophet Zechariah, during the time of the restoration, there were a number of prophets that encouraged them. Haggai, Haggai for example, and Zechariah. And Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 4 talks about these two leaders. Talks about the high priest, Yeshua, or Joshua, whichever way you want to put it. That he was the high priest, but also shows the king. Well, he wasn't crowned king, but he was of kingly descent, Zerubbabel. And so Zechariah is prophesying to them as they're repairing the altar. And look, chapter 3, Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his hand to oppose him. And we see Joshua is clothed in sin, and Satan is accusing the high priest. But God says, is he not a brand plucked by the fire? And then he speaks to him, and he restores him. It's all there in chapter 3. I haven't got time to go through it. So, it's not just me speaking prophetically about Ezra restoration for our lives. Zechariah 3 shows you that as they were restoring the physical altar and the physical temple, God was restoring the spiritual altars and the spiritual temples. You see it there. Um, um, jo Joshua or Jeshua or whatever, high priest, he needed restoration. He was dirty and filthy. He had been in Babylon, and he needed an encounter with the Lord. He needed sanctification and cleansing, and the devil had rights over him. And the devil said, I accuse him of this idolatry, that backslidden. Look, even if you've been a backslidden Christian, you know, you can be like the high priest. You can be cleansed and healed and restored. You say, oh, I've been a Babylonian Christian for so long. Don't worry. So was the high priest. And you think, I could never be on fire on my heart for the Lord. Yes, you can. You're a candidate. The high priest was ruined by Babylon. But he said, I want to come out of Babylon. The devil said, you're mine. And God said, grace. He's a brand plucked from the fire. Put on a new robe, a new turban, a new ring, and set him forward as the high priest. And then we see in chapter 4, we see the two olive trees, a prophet saying two olive trees with bowls. And he says, what is this? In verse 6, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He was the other man, wasn't he? We saw in, in the kingly person. Yes, you're in Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone. That's the foundation stone. This is what we're reading in Ezra. With shouts of grace. Grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. His hands shall finish it, that you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Isn't this wonderful? We could go right into this. But what is this talking about? The anointing. The two anointings. The priestly anointing and the kingly anointing. Restored, not just the altar, as we read in Ezra. Go back to Ezra 3, verse 2. The kingly anointing was in operation. What is that? That is the apostolic anointing. That is the ap We have an apostolic anointing in this church, we, we don't just have a senior pastor. He, he has pastoral gifts, but that's not his main calling. He's an apostle, a clear apostle, not somebody who we call an apostle because apostles higher than pastor and a bit higher than bishop, and maybe we should have archbishop, and, you know. No, that's his, that's his ministry. He's proved his apostleship. We have the pattern, we have the books, we have the vision, we have the enabling. We have the plans. It's the kingly anointing, and that's needed, but also the priestly anointing, worship and sacrifice and offering in all its forms, spiritual and material. Never think that offerings are just money to help the church grow. 
If you think that, now I know that there's people out there that will manipulate offerings to get money. I understand that. I understand that. But never think that your giving and everything that we're doing, the Thanksgiving offering, oh, Thanksgiving week, another opportunity for the church to get money. You think like that, don't give. Because it'll be a slap in the face to God, and he'll slap you back. Don't think like that. Understand the role of the priests. And you see, as they did the altar, they were bringing provision for the altar. It was costly. The provision that they brought, they didn't have much. They just returned. They didn't have much. But to them, it was all for the altar. Give to the altar. And there was a priestly of worship and ministry to the Lord. So we've got the apostolic anointing, the apostolic vision, the apostolic preaching, the apostolic enabling, the kingly anointing that must be obeyed by the house. But also we've got the priestly ministry to the Father. Day and night, worship and offering and praise and sacrifice and incense. We see they had the singers there. You see, the KT worship team are there in chapter 2, verse 70. It says the Levites, some of the people, the singers. It's all there. Clear as crystal when I heard it, as I read, as, as I listened to Ezra. Clear as crystal what the Lord was saying. As I come to a close, we're going to minister out of this. The altar of blood. We need to begin to connect with the power of the blood of Jesus like never before. The power of sacrifice. Wasn't this all about the power of sacrifice, the altar? They didn't come and say, oh, let's build a lovely house. Let's build a nice church. Oh, what should we do? Let's build the walls, let, let, let's build this, let's build the other. The first thing they said is, we've got to connect with blood again. We've got to have the power of blood sacrifice before we can do anything. If the blood's not flowing from the altars, then we're not going to have the power, the deliverance, the forgiveness, the anointing to do what we're going to do. So by the priestly anointing and the kingly anointing, it's time to rebuild the altars the altars of our hearts were being rebuilt. We saw that in Zechariah. They were doing an inward work as well as an outward work in this restoration. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to do the outward work of the ministry, the outward work of reaching out, the outward work of discipling through cells. He wants us to rebuild and do the outward work, the works of God, the works of God. But while we're doing the outward works of God, touching people, blessing people, saving people, um, dis discipling people, releasing people into leadership, he also wants to do the inward work, the inward work, the inward work, not by might, not by power, but the spirit, the anointing. Those two, Zechariah and Jeshua, they're seen as two olive trees. God is calling you to be an olive tree in this house. And to produce oil, the anointing of God, produced through your life to touch people. And so when they got the sacrifice going, for 70 years they hadn't had blood. Now they've got blood religion. They'd got power. They'd got, they'd got power before God. God was looking at the sacrifices. It was a sweet aroma. The blood of sacrifice was availing. And now things were easing up in the heavenlies. Because all those sins that for 70 years hadn't been properly, God, God, God understood, God was with them, you know what I'm saying. But properly, according to the pattern of Moses, all those sins that hadn't been properly dealt with by blood. There was no sacrifice in Babylon. All, the, all those things, all the things that were jarring up the heavenlies, clogging up their heavenlies. All those things that were preventing the full blessing of God. The sins that were built up. All those things, because there'd been no blood cleansing for 70 years. Now, as the blood started flowing, the heavenly started to clear. And the backlog of sin and the muck and the sin and that which prevented open heavens, the blood began to shift the heavenlies. The blood began to atone. They were going into the Day of Atonement. The blood began to wash and to cleanse and to purify and to restore the people of God. As day by day, animals were shed. Life was given. Blood was shed. Blood ran from the altar. 
And the ground once again, which hadn't been for 70 years, although the house wasn't built, the altar was now working, the blood was flowing, the power was flowing, the anointing, where the Holy Spirit sees the blood, there he is. Wherever the blood is, there's the power. Wherever the blood is, there's the healing. Wherever the blood is, there's the deliverance. It's a blood religion. But it's not the blood of calves or bulls or lamb. It's the blood of Almighty God, Jesus Christ. His blood is as powerful today as ever. Oh, hallelujah. Do you believe in Jesus' sacrifice? When we talk about the blood, it's shorthand for everything that Jesus did on the cross. That's what it is. The blood is shorthand for the cross. Hallelujah. We, we, need to, we need to, by faith, get that blood flowing. By faith, start tapping in to the benefits of the sacrifice. Ooh. We don't need to sacrifice again. We just need to believe in the once and for all sacrifice made 2,000 years ago. The blood of Jesus is as powerful and as fresh today as the day that it was slain. he was slain. And we make a demand on the power of sacrifice. We believe in the power of covenant. That's why, every, that's why we drink his blood and eat his body. This wine is my blood. Jesus is saying, you've got to make, you've got to connect with my blood. You've got to drink my blood, eat my flesh, like they ate the sacrifice. Oh, glory to God. It's got to become part of us. It's his blood. Sacrifice has to flow in our mind, renewing us, forgiving us, cleansing us. We have to deal with the opposition by faith in the sacrifice of Christ. For it was the blood of Christ that defeated the enemy, held him in captivity, brought the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, cleansed, forgave. There's always another chance in the sacrifice of Christ. We can wash ourselves, glory to God. How about washing your robe in the blood of Jesus? How about washing yourself in the blood? That's right. How about diving in to the sacrifice of getting all bloody? That's right. Getting the blood on. Soaking yourself in the blood of Jesus. Drinking the blood of Jesus by faith. Oh, glory. This is sacrifice talk. You get people today saying, oh, people today don't understand sacrifice. You have to talk about other things. You have to talk about friendship and love. Blood. Blood. This is a blood religion. Glory to God. A blood religion. Beginning and end. It's the blood that cleanses you. As a close, and we're going to release the power of the blood in a few moments' time. But I just want to share with you a prophecy. A personal prophecy, but I'll share it with you tonight. How many have heard of Jimmy Dowd's? Great Scottish minister, great friend of our house, often ministered at our cell conferences. But he sent me a prophecy last week. He didn't know I was doing any of this. He doesn't know what I'm teaching on. And, he sa- and this is what he sent to me. It's personal, but it's relevant. Son of Atkin, I'm Atkinson. Son of the Red Earth. Well, I thought, what's he on about? Son of Atkin, son of the Red Earth. Well, I've been Atkinson all my life. So it's the first time when I like Googled, what does Atkin mean? And Atkin means red earth. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It comes from Adam. Atkin, it's a form of Adam. I didn't know that until I got this prophecy and Googled it. Son of Atkin, Atkinson, son of red earth, why do you doubt? I am your resource. I am calling you to walk the untraveled path. See, where we're going, no one's traveled before. Son of red earth, why do you doubt? I am your resource. I'm calling you to walk the untraveled path to turn the earth red with the blood of Jesus. Leap and do not delay. Turn the earth red with the blood of Jesus. I didn't know I was Bruce Red Earth. I'm happy to take that. And by the way, this is my book of prophecy. I've mentioned this before. Every prophecy or every word that God highlights to me personally is in this book. Because how can I live by the promises of God if I don't even know what they are for my life? Thank God for the general promises of God. I need to hear God for me. Right here, uh, and there's more to come, I know, but right here is my past, my present, right to my future. My end is in this book. God's shown it to me already. God wants to reveal to you, this is an aside, 
He wants to speak to you, but you have to make a record of what he reveals or how you're going to believe him in the difficult times. I take this and I read. And I read the prophecies and I fight warfare with them. Amen. Let's stand together. Ministry team, come forward. Right where you are, just let the anointing. God's doing work. He's rebuilding the altar. As in those days, there's a restoration going on in your heart. This is the move of God. There's restoration going on in your heart. These are the prophetic messages that have been brought to me from God. I didn't want to preach on Ezra. God told me to listen to Ezra. This is fresh from heaven, and it's for you and this house. And right now, we're going to worship the Lord. And we've got a prayer team right here. And if you need to leave right now or any time, just feel free to go. We're not going to hold you back. But for the next 15 minutes, if there's anything you need prayer for, I'm talking about illness. Especially if you've thought, oh, I've had this illness for years. Come forward. If there's a breakthrough, if there's oppression in your life, the blood of Jesus is powerful. And when you preach on the blood, the power of the blood comes. So during this time of worship, next 15 minutes, if you want to leave right now, you're free to go whenever you want. But I want to encourage you, don't go out without prayer. Because the prayer of agreement releases the covenant of God. And even right where you are in this time of worship, what has God said to you tonight? And how is it going to change you? As we worship the Lord, feel free to come and have ministry and prayer.